Well, this morning we're going to pick up in Colossians 1.28 as we've been going through this great book of Colossians. And right here it starts out, really, this is a theme verse for Colossians, right here as we begin this. I mean, I mean, there's several as you go along the way and you're like, oh, this is such a great verse, this is a theme verse, but this one really is, and, and I'll probably say that about several others. And, okay, Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And I do not like that word perfect. We're going to get back to that word here in a second. But we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling, uh, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know that how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not met me personally, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all hidden or in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul says that he is using all his energy that he has, that God has given him, and he tells us that he is working hard. So that everyone may be presented to, to God as, as perfect in Christ. Now raise your hand if you're perfect this morning. I'm the only, I mean, uh, okay, wait, no hands, okay. See, that, this is one reason why I don't really like this word. The, the word perfect is, is, is not quite, in, in our English language, it didn't mean the same as when they translated it uh, back then. Really, the word is, is mature. And when you, you plug in the word mature here, it changes the whole view of this verse. He is struggling hard to present us as mature in Christ. And that makes so much more sense for us. This is Paul's goal, and it's an important goal for us to be mature. If we get this part wrong, if we do not understand maturity in Christ, then uh, it affects our lives deeply. It changes who we are. It is said, it is, you know, it's said that the best argument for being a Christian is what? Christians. The best argument for being a Christian is Christians. Our joy, our certainty, our completeness. Now, what is the best argument for not being a Christian? Christians. When we don't have joy, when we don't have, self, you know, or we become self-righteous, or we become oppressive, or we become, you know, high and mighty, and all these different things, or we don't serve the community, we don't reach out to people, we don't serve other people, Christianity is worthless to the world. When we live our lives in a way that does not reflect Jesus Christ and our belief in Him, we become unfeeling, we become un unapproachable, boring, I might even say, and dissatisfied. Now, is that a, an appealing picture to the world? Hmm, it's really not. 
But when we have a clear picture of what it means to live in Christ, life becomes meaningful. It becomes joyful. It becomes so much more than I get up in the morning when I really don't want to. I go to work or I sit around or whatever you know, my routine is. And then at night, you know, I eat throughout the day. And then at night, I go to sleep. It becomes much more meaningful when it's through Christ and we understand who Christ is. So today what I want to talk about is spirituality wrongly understood and then what it looks like when we understand it. Now, how is spirituality wrongly understood? Well, let me explain this by describing people in general. Because when I was on my fishing trip to Canada, we had a a gentleman that, that came on the trip with us. It was his first time. And he's one of these guys, he walks in the room, he owns the room. You know what I'm talking about? He's the funny guy, he's the guy that everybody just naturally, you know, oh, I want to go be, be next to him, I want to go talk to, to, to this person. I mean, he's just one of those guys. And I spent a few days, I mean, fun guy. We had a blast on the trip with him and everything, and I'm like, at the end of the trip, I'm like, you can definitely come back if you want to come on, on our trips and stuff, because... I went fishing with him several days, spent, you know, all day long in a boat with him, fishing and talking about different things. Come to find out, he is just as insecure as each one of us. He's like, am I fitting, you know, Alan, am I fitting into the group? Alan, have I done anything to offend anybody? Because he likes to be funny, he likes to be smart aleck. So, you know, he, he understands that he can be offensive sometimes. You know, not really meaning to offend somebody, but joking around, and all of a sudden that person takes offense, you know. So he was just as insecure as us. So if we start to understand personalities, we can relax. You know, instead of going, oh, I want to be just like that person. Well, that person's just like us. We all have our own personalities. So let's talk about people in general. And church people, there's the angry person. Maybe they're angry at their spouse, they're angry at their kids, their job, their coworkers. Sometimes even angry with the people they go to church with, heaven forbid. You know, fights with other churchgoers. They carry grudges. They always carry around their hurt. Inside the church, this person won't talk to certain people. You know, it's one of those things where I sit on one side and you sit on the other side. And that's, we're going to have to switch, right? You know, I'm just, no, not all of you are offended by, yeah, anyway. But because they have this, outside the church, people just don't put up with them. You know what I mean? You're just kind of like, I'm done with that person. I, you know, I have a person on my block that, that kind of, I, I got to a point where I was just like, I'm done with him. I'm done with him, you know? But inside the church, what do we do? Well, because of our Christian love, we have to put up with one another. We should. We shouldn't go running off to another church if if we're having a disagreement with somebody else in the church. That's not always a good thing. But inside the church, we should love each other enough to be around each other. But sometimes this type of angry person will be regarded as a spiritual person because they have a passion for the truth. They're always looking for the truth, so they're always questioning everything. And you cannot get through a Bible study with this person in the room, because they continually clarify everything, whoever's teaching, whoever's leading at that point, will, will uh, as they're going, going through, they, they continually, they dog on every word, every little thing, and you're just like, I can't even get through the study. You can't even move forward. And they will argue every point. So they're looked at as very spiritually fit in that way, you know, in, in, in that sense. Now here's another type. This is the most feared person in a church. 
And when I say, I, you know, I've kind of thought back through this, and, and I don't want you sitting there going, oh, Alan's talking about me today. If Alan's talking about you today, then you deal with the Holy Spirit and God with that, okay? That don't, I didn't, when I was putting this together, I was not thinking about our church. I've gone to church all my life. I'm 44 years old, okay? I've had a lot of experience with different types of personalities, so it's not coming from here, okay? But the most feared person in the church, they're a master of guilt and manipulation, They lead Bible studies, and you can come as long as you do things their way. You can come to the study. They're involved with everything, but they don't love people. They don't love things. You know, it's more of a control thing. They've been in church their whole life, but they've never learned how to love people. At home, they call the shots, and they feel their whole life they should call the shots. Now, here's another type of person who wrongly understands spirituality. This person is the defender of the truth. You will know if you accidentally disagreed with this person's position because they will come and tell you that you disagreed with their position, and they will tell you why you're wrong. They will twist and turn every little nook and cranny that you say, and then they will go out and talk about you, and they will, they will make you look really bad. They will attack your motives. They, you know, they know, they know a lot of, of information about the Bible, but again, they're not loving. And for some reason, people think of, of this per- type of person as spiritual leader because of their knowledge of the Word of God. Okay? Now, is that a pretty picture of the church? Unfortunately, no. And I could keep going with more and more types of people. But let me explain why I'm talking about this, because something has bothered me about these types of people for a long time. And at one point or another, I've probably been all three of these, four of these type of people. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not trying to be, well, I'm so bothered by these people, you know. But let me explain something. On one side, you have the church. It's for all types of people, Right? It's where we come. It's where we should be loved. It's where we can worship God. It's where we can connect with God. It's where we can, you know, have communion with each other and with God. Even though we've messed up and we're full of sin. The church is for sinners. The church is not for perfect people in the sense of what we think of the word perfect means, okay? In fact, church after church after church that I've been to, These type of personalities are not thought of as the weaker brother or sister in Christ. In fact, most of the time we elevate these people to the point of leadership without regard to the communion. Okay, look this way, guys. He's just taking a crying one out. It's okay. But we elevate these type of people to to leadership positions without regard to the maturing process. If a person sounds like a leader, therefore they must be a leader. Let me tell you about one church I went to. My wife wife and I went to. There was a wonderful, wonderful pastor. I I mean, he was just... uh, uh, I've uh, I've had the privilege of sitting under three just phenomenal teachers of the Word of God. And one of these, he he had a close friend that everybody looked up to because he had this deep voice and he was very tall and he was very commanding and he walked into the room and everybody just went, oh, you're the leader. I mean, I mean, just that was the personality. And uh, and this person, um, to to me, something felt off 
But, you know, at the same time, God can use all personalities. God can use all kinds of people. You know, and I was new at this church, so I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to cause any problems. But this church, uh, this person was in charge of, of their board. You know, he had that authoritative voice. Then I went on a mission trip with this person. And I had, a, I had an awesome missions trip on one side. But the other side of things, I had a terrible mission trip. Because I had to deal with some of the things that was going on behind the scenes. And by the end of the mission trip, I was like, there is no way this person should be charged of the mission trip, much less in charge of the board at the church. There's just no way. He wasn't a mature Christian. And come to find out, he was a great worldly leader. I mean, he'd made it in his company in the Bay Area way up there, corporately. But not mature in the faith. Come to find out, he'd only been a Christian for a couple of years. And here they threw him into the leadership of the church. It was not a good thing. And yet everyone looked up to him. And we talked about going back on this mission trip the next year. And, and uh, I was just like, Lisa, you can go on the second trip. That's fine. But there's, I, I just cannot do that. So instead of causing problems, I just stepped back. And I ended up you know, taking a, a group to, to Greece instead on a, on a different mission trip. But the point was... This person was not mature to be there. So I stepped back. I didn't want my personality to, because I would have confronted him, and it was better off me not going, you know. Well, not a year later, my wife and I, we'd, we'd moved on from this church because uh, I uh, went back into church ministry and took a job as a pastor at, at a different church. And, and, and we're hearing problems from this other church, and our heart just sank. I mean, it was a great church. But this man, you know, thought he knew best, and started challenging the pastor at every turn. Eventually, this young church that had just started several years before actually shut its doors. This leader went on to be hired at another church in a very significant position, something like executive pastor or something like that. Ended up having an affair with his, uh, with his secretary. Ended up getting divorced and then marrying that secretary. his family apart. They'd adopted a little girl from Africa. Great spiritual leaders, great spiritual believer that many people, th- people thought he was, when in reality he wasn't mature at all. This person and other types of people that I described need our help. And the reason why I say, we don't need to get in their face and go, no, no, but at the same time, we need our help. They need our help in maturing. Yet, for some reason, are often looked at as the spiritual leaders. And when sensible people get turned off by this, we often think, well, it must be us. It must be me. Something's setting wrong here. It must be me. So we never bring it up because everyone else thinks they're great. What happens is this produces leadership within the church based on personality instead of maturity in God. Based on personality. Everybody's attracted to the one that you know, walks into the room, and it's the commander. That everybody, you know, everybody wants to go talk to that person because they're funny. Everybody wants to go because, I mean, their personality, it attracts people, and we automatically put that type of person in charge instead of looking at maturity. Many of us have been damaged by people like this in the church. You know what it, you know what it looks like, you know what it sounds like, and you know what it feels like. And a lot of times this happens because we're looking at spirituality wrongly. 
Jesus spent a lot of times trying to correct this in the Bible. The Sermon on the Mount deals with this. As the spiritual leaders of, of the temple were standing around and he would point out different things. And as we went through the book of Matthew, we talked about a lot of that. But it's important for us to understand that the church in Colossae that we're talking about, we're dealing with some of the same things. The believers had become legalistic. Following rules for rules' sake. This is how we do it. This is how we always done it. This is how I was taught, so therefore this is how we do it. I was kind of joking around because, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist, and, and if you even, you know, said the word dance, I mean, people fall over dead in the church. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And, and uh, the other church that's uh, setting up in our cafe, and they were doing that song, oh, it was uh, big in like 2000, 2004. It has the word dancing. We were dancing something. I forgot the words of it because I'm just... My mind's like that. But I walked in, and they were laughing, and they said, oh, we shouldn't be dancing. I said, that's right. I grew up Southern Baptist, and we don't dance. You know, but that's kind of the mentality that we have for some reason. I was taught this, and this is how it is. But it's important for us because these, uh, this, stuff, uh, this type of stuff happens at the expense of love, at the expense of compassion, at the expense of kindness toward one another. Legalism is an overemphasis of the rules, of the law, of the behavior, or the conduct. And Jesus warned us about this. He warned the Pharisees. He said, guys, you are whitewashed tombs. And what that means is the outside would be coated in this white stuff that they would put all over the tombs. It would signify, hey, there's a new body in here. If you're going to temple, don't walk near this because you will become defiled and you can't go worship God. Because there's all these rules about cleanliness and how many days and all. He basically says, you're all white on the outside. You all look good on the outside, but the inside you're rotting and you're dead. That's what he was telling them. And that's what happens when we do these things. Obedient to the law, but no love, no grace, no mercy. Letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. It places obedience to the law above God's grace. Paul warns them of this in, in, in chapter 2, verses six, uh, 16 through 23, and we're not going to cover that today. But he says, there are some of you who think you are judges, deciding who is in, you know, who's in the group, who's out of the group, who is not part of the group, and they're basically pushing the Gentiles out of the church because the Gentile Christians were not following the Jewish Christians' way of eating because there's kosher rules for the Jews, right? And they're saying, well, you're coming into our faith, because they looked at Christianity as an extension of the, of the Jewish faith, and you're not following the, the, you know, these, these dietary laws. And they were pushing them out of the church. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. So he writes, he says to them in verse 17, to them God has chosen to make known among Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which in Christ is you, the hope of glory. <coughs> He wanted to remind them the church was for the Gentiles also. The legalistic view say the rules are the most important. Clean on the outside was a way to kind of keep score. Now, spiritual practice can also be legalistic if we're not careful. It becomes something we do. And it doesn't benefit us in transforming us into becoming the likeness of Christ. Because we worship for worship's sake. Or, you know, we take communion for communion's sake. Or we're studying the Word because that's what we do. We study the Word. But it doesn't move us forward when we're legalistic about it. 
if we don't see a change in our life by doing these things, then we have to ask ourselves, why? And we usually start out and say, when we start asking those questions, well, why, you know, why, why am I not, you know, moving forward? Why am I not maturing in this? And we go, well, they, you see my point? When you should be saying, well, I, or you should be thinking about, well, maybe I'm not doing this, or maybe I need to do more of that, or, or maybe I need to start listening to God, we, we automatically go, well, they. You know, right now, I mean, my wife and I could totally go, well, man, you know, our kids, them, I don't have any time to do this or that because of them. You know, you could look at it like that, which is a sad way to do it because we're thinking, well, they are the problem. When in reality, I need to start with the word I. Take tithing, for example. We look and look at tithing, and you could take almost anything, and I'll just take that one. Um, We can look at it in two different ways. When I write a check, or in my case, when the credit card goes through, because that's how I do mine, but, you know, when I see the statement, I can look at it in two ways. I can either think, wow, I could really be doing a lot of different things with that money that I'm giving. I could buy this, I could buy that, I could do this, I could do that, I could go on that vacation, I could do this. Or I could look at it like, wow, God has surely blessed me with the things that He owns anyway, so I give this amount back to Him, being thankful about what I'm being able to give because God has blessed me. I can look at it one way or the other. And this is a great spiritual practice or an act of worship. Do you see what I'm saying? The spiritual practice is, well, legalistically I give because I'm supposed to give and this is the amount I'm supposed to give and this is what I write my check for. And the other side, <coughs> the act of worship is, man, God has blessed me so therefore I give. You see the difference between the two, the view between the two? So both ways still give, but one is a maturing factor, and one is just writing a check. See, one of the problems with the church is this. We feel like we can say what we think only sometimes. You know what I'm saying? How many times have you bit your tongue? Sometimes it's good to bite your tongue. You know what I'm saying? How's your week going? Oh, it's going great, brother. Great, great, great. When in reality, it's been a terrible week. But we've been taught, well, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer on Sunday morning. So therefore, great. I can't let anybody know because I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to have joy in my life. I'm supposed to be, you know, supposed to be relying on God. Which apparently means never allowing anyone to know my struggles so they can pray for me. You see my point? Legalism produces this from within the church, and it should be and is all about Christ instead of us. Let me tell you why legalism and the wrong view of spirituality is wrong. How many of you like to fish? Okay, we got several. Excellent. We have to do a fishing trip sometime, you know? Be a fun thing. A local one. You don't have to go all flying in little planes like I do, you know, but, you know, it's a lot of fun. But the first thing about fishing is trying to figure out what the fish are eating, right? And, and those that, that fish ought to be able to say yes to that one, okay? You've got to figure out what the fish are going to eat. The time of the year that you're going to be there, 
Are they coming out of spawning season? Are they going into spawning season? And some of you are going, I just put my line in the water. That's all I do. That's okay, too. It's okay. But temperature makes a difference. Temperature of water makes a difference, whether it's raining or whether it's not. This year, a couple of new people on the trip um, asked, you know, one day it was raining, and they're like, oh, so we're not going to go out fishing today. I looked at them and said, no, you're, you're crazy. We're going out to fish. I don't care if it's 45 degrees and raining. We're, well, one, we've got to catch fish to eat tonight. But number two, that's when the fish bite. For some reason, up in the north, fishing for walleye, when it starts raining, you need to get out there as soon as possible because, man, you can haul in a lot of fish, and it's a lot of fun. So I like to fish, okay? You can tell. But knowing these things are key to getting the fish to, to bite. Do I use a lure or do I use a, a jig head or <coughs> do I use this color or that color? But the most important thing is to know what they're eating. Because here's the difference. The real bait is real. When I put, uh, when I, you know, we call it bait fish, the, you know, the bigger fish, fish eat the little fish. Sometimes we use bait and sometimes we use lures. But the real bait, it brings nourishment to the fish. The fake bait on the line, what does that bring? Death. When I catch a fish, it can bring death. You see what I'm saying? If I'm going to keep that fish and eat that fish, it brings death. When they're out there swimming and they see a little you know, bait fish swimming along and they eat it, that's nourishment for them. But if it's connected to my hook, I may throw it back, but it could be potential death. Death closely resembles the real thing. See, what we're doing when we're fishing, we're faking out the fish. It closely resembles the real thing. These things that closely resemble the real things creep into the church. Creep into the church and we end up getting fooled and we're like the fish. Jesus says, in him there is freedom, and don't be fooled by the fake. Have faith, don't feel that God is out to get you. It's okay if you've messed up, but we need to learn the truth. I'm trying to teach my son, it's okay when you mess up, but I want to teach you out of that. So we can see God's grace, God's beauty, God's sacrifice in our lives. And we'll recognize God compared to legalism. You see what I'm saying? Are you tracking me or am I just way off here? So it brings us, so this kind of brings us to what spirituality ought to look like in Christ. It's a life of wonder. It's a life of awe. It's a life of simplicity. It's a life of worship and love and humility and servanthood. And when they saw this in Jesus... Many people gave up everything they had to follow him, and they followed with joy. That's what following God's about. That's what true spirituality is all about. I'm not saying that you should go give up everything, but I'm just saying the love, the joy, the peace, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul puts out. Paul says that his goal is us as perfect, as mature. Jesus is the definition of spiritual maturity. Paul describes what this looks like in chapter 2 and, you know, what a person should look like when they're maturing. And so Paul lets, um, 
you know, Paul says, let's look at several, you know, characteristics that give us that maturity. So, you know, let's go back to verse 2 real quick. I think it's, well, I'll just say verse 2. There we go. No, I'm way off. There we go. My purpose is that you may be encouraged in heart. The first sign of spiritual maturity is an encouraged heart. It means to, to comfort or to console or to cheer up. It's warm. It's compassionate. It's gracious with people. You know, you, have you ever heard you know, somebody go, man, that person has a lot of heart. That's exactly what we're talking about. But plug God into that. So here's the question. How irritable are you these days? Are you full of anger? See, one of the... <coughs> One of the signs of maturity is not to be so irritable. Paul says that love is not easily provoked. That is hard. You know, I keep, I've been thinking this. I haven't told my wife this, but I want to put a a little thing in my car to remind me not to get upset at the idiot drivers on the road. Because my son is sitting back there listening to me, and he'll even say, Daddy, why are you irritated? Or he'll say frustrated. What's your first response when somebody hurts you? Do you hurt them back? Are you bitter? Are you always judging people? Are you always critical? I think you get the point. I could just keep going all day long with this. But love is not easily provoked. We need to, you know, we need to be fed by Scripture. We need to be praying, Lord, help me to be more like you. You know, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be upset. Because even Jesus was upset. But the key is how we handle it in our maturity. We need to learn how to handle those things. And as my four and a half year old, four and three quarters year old, whatever he is now, I'm trying to get him to understand how to, how to you know, deal with being frustrated at daddy when daddy says, no, you need to go do this and you want to play instead. And he'll go stomping with his feet down the hall. And I'm like, no, 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 come back here, Brandon. And he'll come back and he'll stand 10 10 feet from me. I'm like, no, 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 come here. Get here. And he gets right in front of me. I lean down and whisper in his ear. I go, don't stomp your feet. I know you're mad, but don't stomp your feet. But I still need you to do what I told you to do. And then he'll go off. But we like to, do we get mad? We like to show how mad we are. My purpose is that we may be encouraged in heart and united in love. United is a great word here. It means to be knit together, to be connected. Today's language would be super glued together in love. Love expresses itself in acts of servanthood. Paul says, I want you to be united in love, to serve one another. And we talked a lot about serving last week. You know, the, uh, here's the paradox. To, to, you know, as Christ says, to be first is to be last. To be great, you should serve. This does not make sense in our world whatsoever, right? I mean, to be first is to be first. You know, we we're always want first place, Right? You don't go, yes, I'm cheering for my last place, Dolphins. Is, is, what's his name here today? No, I guess he's not, or he'd be saying something right now. You know, we don't cheer for our last place team. Maybe we still do, but you know what I'm saying? We want to be first in everything. 
If you want to live life in fullness, then start to serve other people. If you want to make a difference in this world, you serve. You serve. A life that doesn't serve really is a miserable life. It's a life without meaning. You're never really going to be happy. You're going to end up tired and angry. And unfortunately, over the years, and I'm sure you have too, you've ran across some older people who are, who are not gracious anymore. They're just tired and angry. And you wish you could help them. You wish you could fix them. You know, because we, we're into fixing, right? We just do this one, thir- one thing. It fixes people. But what we need to do is love them because, they're, because <clears throat> being tired and angry is not a good thing. Man, I want to I, I grow up to be gracious and loving. And I'm praying that the Lord does that with me, you know? I don't want to end up tired and bitter and angry. But we need to be serving from freedom and grace in, our, in this life without thinking. Without thinking stuff like, this is a noble thing I'm doing. You know what a great sign of maturity is? When you serve someone without thinking, well, I'm really serving this person. I'm really a great person for, for doing this. Or, well, what am I going to get out of this? I hope this person returns a favor one day. Or, you know, the, the, the whole attitude. When you mature and you start to realize this is just how I live. I serve. I put other people before myself. Does that mean you're always in the back line? No. But that means sometimes you go, hey, you know, get up here. And, you, you know, you serve. You help other people. This is what Jesus said. It is better to what than to what? It is better to give than receive. I have a blast giving my kid Christmas gifts. I could care less whether I get a Christmas gift or not. But I love to see the joy on my kid's face when he opens the gift. Now, what I don't like is when he goes, okay, what's next? Where's my next gift? Where's my next gift? But as we mature, we start to understand and we start to serve And it becomes second nature in our lives. So that is servanthood. It is the key to being united in love. He says, my purpose is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may be, have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may, uh, they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Understanding wisdom and knowledge. You know, the definition of wisdom is Christ. Paul is saying, I want you to have the wisdom that Jesus did in your life on a daily basis. Now, wisdom is very practical. It's not just about knowledge. Because if it was just about knowledge, man, we have a lot of wise people in this world. Especially in this internet, you know, internet age. You find out anything. But that doesn't mean they're wise. To be able to say and do the right thing at the right time. That's true wisdom. In the right way for the right reason. We learn, you know, we learn wisdom from Scripture in Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word, you know, when it says the word of Christ there, the word means literally the thoughts of Christ, and the ways of Christ. Dwell means it's been, you know, it's overtaken your life. 
And we kind of get back to the, to the cucumber and pickle illustration I used, you know, many weeks ago. You know, cucumbers, at least in my opinion, yucky. You put it in the pickle juice and you leave it in there for how long? A really long time. And you take out the pickle and you eat it and it's what? Yummy, in my opinion. Okay, I know, I know. <clears throat> but the juice has overtaken the personality, if you will, of the cucumber. To dwell in Christ means he has overtaken you and changed you so your thoughts and your actions are like Christ. This is part of the maturing process. And when we don't mature, we make the same mistakes over and over and over and over, and we live a life of regret and full of sin. So the question is, are you growing in wisdom? Are you making the same mistakes over and over and over again? Do you find yourselves making the same or doing the same things, uh, you know, that regret stuff on a daily basis? You know, raising children is a lot of fun. And And as I raise my children, I have one goal for them. And that goal is for them not to irritate me so much. I mean, um, wait, that's the wrong one. Reality, my goal is for them to mature, to mature as they grow up, to learn from their life mistakes, to deal with the issues that upset them in a way that shows that they truly believe in God. That is my goal. And one day that they become a mature Christian. Because if they learn those things early in life, oh man, life is so much easier later on to serve others and put other people before themselves. That's my goal. That's what Paul's goal for us, because Paul looks at himself as like our parent, and we're the children. So let's look at verse 6 and 7 really quick. It says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This, this is a great list of metaphors. Great list here about being immersed in Christ. To live in Him. To live as if Jesus was living in my place, which He really is because He's in my heart. He's with me. This is maturity, to do what Jesus would do in my place. Then He says to be, re- re- <coughs> Excuse me. To be rooted in Him. This is an agriculture metaphor here. It's a great metaphor. He is the vine, we are the branches, that whole concept there. We receive our nourishment from him 24-7. The same way roots receive nourishment from the ground, and they deliver it to the branches. Then he says to be built up. And this is an agriculture uh, or uh, architectural metaphor here. He is our foundation. His teaching are the stones, the foundation for our life. And then he says to be strengthened in him. And this is a business metaphor. We think strengthened is in lifting weights. But, but that, again, that word back then translated a little different. To be strengthened is a business word. It means a guarantee for the business contract like collateral is. The guarantee that this is a strong deal. So live as if Christ strengthens your life. Then Paul says, overflowing with thankfulness. If my life is like this, 
If my life, if I am immersed in Christ, living in Him and through Him, and rooted and built up in Him, and strengthened in faith through Christ and in Christ, then I will be able to recognize it because I am overflowing with thankfulness. In fact, my wife and I are, are planning on doing something at home, and I, I've been talking with her, and we're going to try to do it up here too. We're going to make a fake tree on the wall, you know, make a big trunk and, and all this, and, and, and start putting up things during the fall of things that we are thankful for and teaching our, our sons the things that we're thankful for and we put on leaves. And I think we need to do that here on one of our walls because we need to be more thankful for the things that, that God is doing in our life because our lives should be overflowing with thankfulness. Oh, man. Think about what your life is overflowing with. Okay, now stop thinking about that. It should be overflowing with God's thankfulness, which would show how grateful we are for the things that God has done for us in our life. Do I find myself complaining or am I grateful? Paul says that we should be overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing is a word that <coughs> Paul really likes, and he uses it throughout his writings. He uses it for the fruit of the Spirit also, overflowing with joy, overflowing with gratitude, overflowing, you know, this abundance. In other words, there's more than enough. <clears throat> Have you ever seen the commercial where the kid, you know, gets the milk out of the, the, the refrigerator and he has a cup and he's filling, you know, he's got it on the counter and he fills it up. It's almost to the top and then he fills it where it's almost kind of, you know, that little bubble you get on the top. It's really overflowing. It's really more than necessary. And then he puts the milk away and he <laughs> grabs a glass and he's just walking along back into the living room and there's just milk spilling out all over. Someone bumps him, what's going to come out? Milk. This is our relationship with Christ. We should be overflowing and have abundance that when we're, you know, we're bumped, what comes out of us? Christ. Because I tell you, too many times in my life when I've been bumped, Christ has not come out. It's been something completely different. Too many times in our life when we've been bumped, Christ doesn't come out. We need to be, a, you know, be so thankful of what God has done for us that when we are bumped, Christ comes out. That doesn't mean we let people roll over us. I'm not saying that. But we have this amazing opportunity to become mature in Christ because it's not about bonus points in heaven. It's about us changing and looking more like Christ. How do you look like Christ today? That's the question you should be asking. And then you should be asking, how am I going to look like Christ tomorrow? What am I going to do to mature so that next week, next month, Next holiday, next year, I'm going to look more like Christ than I am today. We are a gift from God. And the gratitude in this life ought to show this. Everything we have is a gift from God. You know, I look at, and again, I, go, I, you know, I try to relate back to my life. I don't look at myself as being great for adopting a child. I look at the child as a gift from God that he's given me to take care of. You see my point? I could be going around going, yeah, I'm the greatest. I adopted a kid. 
When really I'm going around going, let me tell you what God has done for us. God has given us this gift to raise. How beautiful of a picture this is. See, the church ought to be the place that overflows with gratitude that the gifts of the gifts that God has given us. It says here, so then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness. Well, why don't you stand and I will bless us as we finish up for today. Lord, I pray that I pray that we start to understand maturity is important in our life. That if we look back a year from now, we can say, wow, I've, I've matured. Or as we look forward, we can say, where do I want to go with my life in you? How do I want my life to overflow in abundance overflow with you, that people see a difference slowly but surely in my life, that as I mature in your faith, as I mature through your spirit, as I mature, that we are presented perfect in front of God because of you, Lord, and that we should be coming more like you. Now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you, and may he sometimes kick you on the backside to help you mature but may He lead the way in your life that you're a blessing to this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. amen. You guys,